0: Audio Conversation with Kathleen Martin recorded Sunday, november sixteenth, twenty fourteen. Kathleen is a UFO abduction researcher. She's been involved with this for a long time. She is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Now she was in the room when Betty called Kathleen's mother right after the contact event that took place in nineteen sixty one. She was right there in the room when her mother spoke with Betty about her seeing a UFO on the drive back from Canada. Now, she's written a book about this. The book is titled Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And she was also the caretaker for Betty when Betty was elderly as well as suffering from cancer. So Kathleen took care of Betty while she was succumbing to cancer. And uh, she got to know her quite well and did a lot of research with her. What is very interesting is the story that emerges from Captured is very different than what emerges from The Interrupted Journey, the fuller book on the same subject. Betty and Barney had many more UFO contact experiences than were implied in the book that was published in the 1960s which is not unusual and should be expected given the given the reports of UFO uh, experiencers. Now, Kathleen has written a more recent book. This book is titled The Alien Abduction Files, and the co-author is Denise Stoner. And I have spoken at length with both Denise and Kathleen uh, before doing this interview. I've met Kathleen several times over the years at different conferences. And what happens in this, this interview... Is we discuss Kathleen's recent coming out. She has had her own UFO contact experiences, which really should be of no surprise if she's has a direct relationship, a family relationship with Betty Hill. She's now, after researching this for over 20 years, has come forward and shared her own contact experiences, and we talk a lot about that, the challenges of that, the reasons for that in this audio interview. I don't want to waste any more time with the introduction. We, we cover everything quite thoroughly in the talk. The audio interview that you're about to listen to runs almost two hours. Please enjoy. Kathleen, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you today.
0: Good. Now, the, the, you've worked on um, two books specifically on the UFO experience. One about your aunt and uncle, which would be Betty and Barney Hill. Yes. And then the other one is a, a more recent one, which is titled The Alien Abduction Files. And the, the subtitle is The Most Startling Cases of Human-Alien Contact Ever Reported. And that, that came out last year.
1: That is correct.
0: Yeah, I would like to – and that you co-authored that with Denise Stoner – and, yes, uh, and I worked had the, on that together. Yeah, I've talked with Denise on the phone a couple of times, and then I had a wonderful long conversation with her uh, at the conference event. And uh, for the focus of this interview, I would put it more on the uh, Alien Abduction Files book, though we certainly can touch on, on the experiences of your aunt and uncle. But for me, I thought the, um, that Alien Abduction Files book was quite good, and it, it touched on some of my own experiences.
1: Well, thank you very much. Denise is just a remarkable woman, uh, highly intelligent, uh, one of the nicest people I have ever met. And uh, we felt that it was important to work on this book together, to share ideas, and particularly the 2012 uh, Martin stoner Commonalities Study that the two of us did as well that we included in our book.
0: Okay, in that commonality Study... That was based on a questionnaire. Now, is that the same exact questionnaire that shows up on the MUFON website?
1: When no, you... okay. it is not exactly the same. Uh, the questionnaire was uh, offered on my website and on at Kathleen-Martin.com and on Denise's website at DeniseMStoner.com. We advertised it through several Uh, UFO and abduction-related websites. Uh, Also, we talked about it on a number of radio shows. Uh, I passed it out at conferences where I was speaking. So we had a variety of ways to interest people in the questionnaire itself. Uh, We wanted to get as broad an audience as we could because uh, we had 45 questions that pertain to experiencers, And we had uh, another questionnaire with questions that pertain to non-experiencers but were related to the first questionnaire. We wanted to ascertain that uh, commonalities across the experiencer population were not also common among the general population. So we ended up with 50 experiencers who completed the questionnaire And many took part in interviews after that. And we had 25 non-experiencers who participated as well. So we had a total of 75 uh, questionnaires and interviews that we were able to use.
0: Now I had I've worked in advertising and I did uh you know I wasn't taking direct part in it but I was certainly part of the process that was doing uh would be questionnaires this was about you know dishwashing liquid and toothpaste and things like that but so I um have a bit of a familiarity with the process so the numbers you're you're giving me 50 would be low for you know, the kind of things that we were doing uh, in my years of advertising.
1: Maybe low for what you were doing, but my background is in social science, and 50 is acceptable uh, for sociological studies. It would have been nice to have more, but it took us an entire year to attain 50 completed questionnaires and interviews. So uh, (laughs) we decided that we would uh, keep it at 50, and uh, and get this done rather than attempting to acquire more.
0: That's completely understandable. Now, did you did you go through any sort of vetting process for the people who filled out the questions?
1: There wasn't really a vetting process per se. It was individuals who believed that they had been abducted or had contact with extraterrestrial beings. Uh, we had uh, some. People who uh, we had never heard of before, but we also had individuals uh, whose abductions have been investigated, and who are very famous uh, abductees in this field who have spoken publicly, who've had books written about their experiences.
0: It's interesting. I took that questionnaire and and it was after the publication of the book. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I went back and forth, and I have the emails on file where I I filled out the the questionnaire, and you made some comments about it. Hey, uh, I was at the conference that just happened in early September in Portland, Maine. Yes. And you were also at that conference, as was Denise. And uh, you did something that uh, I was very impressed by, and you stood on you know, stood at that podium and came forward and spoke publicly about your own experiences.
1: Yes, I did. And and I have to tell you, this was very, very difficult for me. It took me several years of uh, being encouraged by different individuals to do this. I did it uh, almost as an experiment. Uh, the reason I I decided finally to come forward is that individuals who did not know me as far as I know, I certainly did not know them, repeatedly uh, were coming up to me and telling me that these entities wanted me to come forward and to share my story. And uh, I was told that if I would do this, I would receive more information uh, that I could impart to others. And uh, you know, I don't know if that is true. I—I I mean, it seemed a little more than coincidence to me. But this is part of an experiment of sorts that I am conducting to to find out if, in fact, I actually do receive more information than I already have. Uh, It's so difficult because of the ridicule factor, because I am uh, a highly regarded scientific researcher. And I have to say that I am so skeptical that in the past, I uh, had to use Occam's razor on every separate event that I remembered throughout my lifetime. And this assisted me in dismissing my own events as being fantastic and unreal uh, scientifically. Yet, at the same time, they seemed so uh, subjectively real to me, including some physical evidence and conscious recall. How could I possibly uh, put that aside and pretend it didn't exist Uh, So I finally decided that self-delusion and denial uh, had collapsed under the weight of the evidence and in working with so many hundreds of experiencers that I've spoken with now. So I just said, regardless of how satisfying my normal life is, I can no longer write off my past experiences. And to do so would be dishonest and self-deceiving in my mind. So I've taken this step forward uh, experimentally in order to, to see how I'm treated in order to uh, see if this experiment will work. And I will receive uh, messages from ETs about uh, why they're here and what they're doing. That is one of my big objectives.
0: Whew, okay, now I have a hundred questions that just came from that. Uh, so you said several individuals came and asked you to uh, to come forward, or, or or urged you to come forward. Yes, strangers. Complete. Str- so do you don't know who these folks are? Do you do have well, you befriended uh, they them? Well,
1: so? No, no. I I never had contact with them again. They were mostly if I would be say at uh, a conference. And even if I wasn't speaking at a conference, I was just there, uh, it would be psychics who would generally uh, come to me and say something about that. And how would they know that I was an experiencer? But they they did come forward and tell me that.
0: Very interesting. Now, here's the question. So did you follow up with these psychics? Now, so my sense is that if you go to a UFO conference and there's a psychic there, there is a... I would just make the assumption, you know, that this psychic has quite probably had their own UFO contact
1: experiences. No, I, I wouldn't make that assumption. <laughs> I
0: I, I jump to so yes, I mean I I, I I say it's an assumption. I don't say that I know it, but I jump to that assumption. So my sense is that and I've talked to a lot of psychics at UFO conferences and I actually seek them out because be, oftentimes because their information is very interesting and and then you know one of the questions I've asked, I'll ask them is have you had your own you know UFO type experiences and more often than not they will say yes so so very interesting i mean i'm i'm uh, wow okay so and and when you say several is this 2 or 10
1: i would say more on like Five or six. Okay. Okay. Well, that's some
0: input that you're getting. Now, the next question, has any new information come to you?
1: Um, not yet. Okay. okay. <laughs> but well, I, I only said... made this announcement in September, so I'm still waiting. <laughs>
0: now, so in September, that's uh, that's roughly two months ago. Yes. Now what has been the, the the feedback you've received from your peers as well as uh you know people who know you on just a day-to-day level that that don't have any interest at all in the UFO subject?
1: Feedback I've received has been very positive and supporting. So I I'm grateful for that, I have to say.
0: Even among folks that um that aren't, you know, well-versed in the UFO
1: research, Uh, From family members, uh, probably not many people who are not well-versed in UFO research know about this. I just uh, had a feature article in the MUFON journal, and uh, I did identify myself as an experiencer. The article was on uh, MUFON's uh, abduction research team, of which... I am the International Director of Abduction Studies uh, Research. So uh I haven't received feedback from MUFON members yet.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so my sense is that uh, you know, MUFON to me, and I'm I'm not a member and I'm sort of an outsider and I I sense a sort of um I almost want to say schizophrenia, maybe that's the wrong word. You know, there there seems to be, and I'll say it straight up, uh, you know, there seems to be old men that only want to deal with the nuts and bolts stuff and don't want to stray beyond that into anything that that sort of shakes their paradigm. And I certainly think that the abduction lore is—it's not necessarily it's ignored at MUFON, but I just feel that that uh, uh, MUFON as an institution is a little bit anemic. I, maybe that's the wrong way to say. As far well, as well, I
1: think that you are thinking about the old MUFON.
0: Okay, uh, well,
1: the, and there is uh, a new direction. In the Mutual UFO Network. In the old MUFON, uh, it, uh, the vision was toward an organization who had many physical scientists at the top and uh, many uh, techie type uh, field investigators as you move down. And it was based upon UFO sightings and a collection, attempted collection. Of evidence and physical evidence, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, When individuals would in the past report abductions or ET contact experiences, uh, oftentimes maybe an interview would be done, but that would be it. Or maybe they'd be thanked for uh, registering a report, but there wouldn't even be an interview. That's what I've heard uh, from individuals in the past. But I have to tell you that in 2011, uh, Clifford Clift appointed me as MUFAN's International Director of Abduction Research. And we started to take a new direction at that time. We developed uh, over a about a two-year period with uh, a number of consultants, experiencers, scientists, uh, law enforcement officers, uh, and psychologists, uh, new protocols and procedures for the investigation of UFO abductions. Uh, so we have that. We're collecting physical evidence at this point, including Um, Evidence of uh, fluorescence, uh, attempted collection of implants when an investigation, uh, thorough investigation has been done, any physical evidence that might be left on the ground, any physiological evidence, photographic evidence, uh, the clothing that individuals were wearing when they had a significant abduction experience, that sort of thing. So we've moved ahead there, but we've also taken a big step ahead because we have uh, an abduction research team, uh, and that team uh, is providing support to experiencers. Uh, If someone goes on to www.mufon.com, they look under research, they will see an experiencer questionnaire. If they fill the questionnaire out, a member of the ART will contact them with their score and also engage them in conversation about their experience. And uh, what we're attempting to do is to help people to determine whether or not they're looking for an investigation or if they'd just like to have support. Are they looking for hypnosis? We have a referral list and we can refer them to other websites with referral lists. We can refer them to uh, elsewhere for uh, support groups where uh, collecting this kind of information. And we're working cooperatively with other groups now. So that's a big step ahead for the Mutual UFO Network. We still have our nuts and bolts uh, investigators as well, people who are comfortable with that. But we have this new arm of MUFON that uh, I think makes us uh, a much more well-rounded and responsive organization. Jan Harzan is MUFON's new international director, and uh, he has uh, taken MUFON giant steps forward. He's a terrific leader. Uh, We couldn't have uh, a better person at our helm and has done great things for MUFON.
0: That's interesting. I called uh, Jan Harzan uh, shortly after he took the helm. I just went on the mufan website and i clicked his name and said hey i would love to talk to you and ask a couple questions and i didn't expect it and bam like within minutes we were on the phone uh he got right back to me and i guess I'd, he must have just checked his email and so we talked for maybe maybe a half hour and mm. i liked the guy enormously and um who, okay i want to be careful how i say this cuz i this was you know partially in a conversation that we had but i will say this is directed at a audio interview that he did with Alejandro Rojas going back uh, shortly after he took the helm of of MUFON. And he talked about an experience in his youth, um, which I feel like I'm I'm in the role presently of researching the uh, abduction contact experience. And uh, boy, the story he told with him and his brother sure sounded like a contact experience with some distorted time. And he even said it straight up in the interview with Alejandro, so, I'm not revealing anything of any sort that he has not shared publicly already uh that his brother has had what he assumes are contact experiences, and that his brother's had a hard time with it so So he's coming from actually very similar to you in a way, coming from a family with with these very challenging issues
1: yes, absolutely and i think that that's one reason why he is so receptive and he's a very caring person
0: well this is good to hear this is good to hear cuz i'm i'm uh i you know so my experience was i uh this would have been back in maybe 2008 or so and i lived in idaho or i'm living in idaho now and and uh uh you know i called i was dealing with like i was 45 years old and i realized like oh my god this is this is actually quite probably has happened to me and I had all of a sudden these memories were flooding back and and I was you know uh putting the puzzle pieces together and I was I was emotionally at my wits end uh and I reached out to MUFON and they they never returned my call so um so you know like I mean I was basically saying listen I'm very concerned I've had these experiences on a a voicemail thing and no one ever bothered to call me back so um
1: Yes, and that was the experience of many, many people. Unfortunately, in the past, all of that has changed.
0: Okay, because that did create a level of, you know, I'll just gonna say, out and out bitterness on my part towards the institution. So,
1: oh, absolutely, and and bitterness uh, from people who uh, have had uh, not been taken seriously and who have been written off in the past. Uh, you know, it's very unfortunate that uh, that happened in the past. But my team and I are working, and Jan Harzan, are working very, very hard uh, to see that MUFON is responsive to individuals who are having these kinds of experiences.
0: Good. Okay, well, that's great to hear. Just so my sense is, uh, and I've gone to a bunch of UFO conferences, I feel like I've befriended, uh, you know, a handful of folks in the field. I also feel like I have a pretty good reputation. I feel like I'm talking about my own experiences in a in a grounded way that allows even people who are, you know, reticent to to go down the uh the abduction pathway. You know, I feel like I've addressed my own experiences in a fairly grounded way when I speak about them publicly. So, uh like I I feel like I have a I guess a good reputation in among among the researchers and things, and mm. what I found is just as talking to these folks and uh, and I will include you in this too, because we spoke going back it must have been maybe two thousand and ten. I think it was the very first year that they had the, the international uFO Congress the first year that it was in Phoenix, yes, and we sat outside in the little garden there and we spoke for mm-hmm. i don 't know maybe a half hour or so, and I shared some of my experiences i 've had it 's very interesting i 've had a lot more since then. And you were very open and very straight with me that that you had also had your own experiences. And it took me a little bit by surprise. Um,
1: And, you know, I have been open and straight with experiencers uh, for many years. And I have uh, asked them to maintain confidentiality about me. And they have. I have to say that I have to thank everyone who maintained this confidentiality uh, in order to protect me. But I felt that it was important when speaking with other experiencers that they know that I understand where they're coming from, that I've had the same kind of experiences uh, as well. Because just as being a, a researcher who is set aside from all of this, I don't think that they can really fully comprehend what we have been through.
0: And and my experiences have been so fleeting. I don't have any direct memories, let's say, of being on board a craft. I certainly have all the puzzle pieces that, you know how if you have a puzzle on the table and you some puzzle pieces are missing, you can still look at the the puzzle in its totality and, and have a very clear idea what the image is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm at that point with, well, I've actually sort of crossed the line at this, at this point, so <laughs> I feel pretty darn certain that I've had these experiences what it's more than just you that that are people who are out there publicly doing the research talking about their things writing writing uh, books uh that are also have had the direct contact experiences that are not talking about it i am continually, well, let's say I'm less impressed now. It seems almost normal now when talking to researchers and getting them aside and then hearing their own experiences. Uh, And in the last few years a a handful of folks have come forward with their own experiences. I'm thinking of of, uh, Colin Andrews and uh,
1: uh is Bob Salas?
0: Yes, that's right. He was the fellow who was yes, Robert Salas, and that's interesting because yes. he actually came up and talked to me at a conference. I, I uh, it was back when they had the open microphone in Laughlin, mm-hmm. and I spoke for just a little bit. There was they requested that no one record anything and no one take notes, and I spoke for maybe three minutes. It was at the urging of uh, Barbara Lamb, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he came up to me afterwards and and, uh, and thanked me, and we spoke for just a little bit, and I read his name tag. I knew who he was, and and just the, the conversation we had, I just had the sense that that he had had the same experience. So this is, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, Timothy
1: Good has come forward with his experiences. Uh-huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, George his rec- Feiler has as well. Oh, very... So, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, ahead. no, this
0: is fascinating. I am wondering, there's so much... Mind control and sort of uh, induced amnesia, let's say that that takes part in these experiences. That uh, that I'm certain that some researchers have had experiences, and don't even know it, and are working on a sort of a um, an internal mission that may have been uh, be, that that may has been directed by outside entities. And well, that's pure speculation on my part, but I just I have that that would not surprise me if that if that played out in, a, in some of the people doing the research in this field.
1: That could be. Also, I'm aware of researchers who have had these experiences but who have not come forward. Uh, at this point oh and i'm
0: i'm fine i know a bunch of them you probably do too yes (laughs) so and we may know some of the same ones now so i will also say that okay so anyone out there listening to this if you are getting into this field and you are want to play the role of like you know i mean you got you you are only as good as your ability to to keep someone's trust i mean if you mess with that if you fumble and and let something slip you're your name is going to be dirt in this field. Uh, you have only your your word that 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 people can trust you. So um, yes, I take that extremely seriously when people do when well. people say that they want to be kept in confidence. Exactly. Um, and then I will also when sometimes I'll tell people stories that they'll share with me, and I will purposely in telling them, you know, if they're from Florida, I'll say like, oh, this person from you know from Oregon told me this story, and I'll just switch a few of the details around and then and then retell their story to keep their identity hidden.
1: I worked uh, during my professional career as a social worker, as an educator, and as an education services coordinator. So I have a very long history of maintaining confidentiality. And it, I have to tell you that it really helped in the work that I do with experiencers.
0: Yes. Now, so so you've worked as a clinician with patients. No. And- Oh, excuse me. So no. what was your role? You were doing social work?
1: As a social worker, yes, uh, early on, but not as a clinician. I did do uh, field training in a psychiatric hospital uh, where I would go there a couple of days a week. Uh, it was in the state of New Hampshire in the Thayer unit at the state psychiatric hospital. It was a men's unit, and I worked there uh a couple of days a week during my training to be a social worker. But in the job that I had as a social worker, I was working with families of low income children.
0: Okay. So you have seen, uh, you know, firsthand in a therapeutic setting, let's say, uh, you know, people with uh, mental illness or people with uh, uh, things like depression or irrational fears or addictions.
1: Yes, I have, absolutely.
0: Okay, and now this is, so here's my question. Um, These mental health issues, do you find that within the population of of abductees you've worked with, are there, let's say, uh, mental health issues that that show up in their lives?
1: I have to say that a small percentage uh, we found do have generally, usually bipolar disorder. Some are schizotypal as well, or have schizophrenia, uh, but bipolar disorder is uh, something that stands out among a small percentage of the experience or population. Uh, these are the ones who stand out uh, in a huge way in my own mind, because of the mood swings and uh, the intense fear that comes under uh, a psychotic uh, episode. It is uh, unlike abduction experiences in general, but it is absolutely terrifying for the individuals who are psychotic and having these delusions. Uh, So we do have some of these individuals that we work with and we do attempt to uh, guide them to mental health providers who can help them uh, with what they're going through. Most of them have a long history of uh, going back and forth with mental health providers. Uh, So we also have a population of individuals who who test absolutely normal on uh, psychological tests, uh, on personality disorder tests, and uh, but who might be suffering from anxiety or trauma as a result of the experiences that they've had. Uh, and I believe that this comes mostly from a lack of knowledge. I found, uh, speaking personally, years and years ago, when I didn't really... Uh, have full knowledge of, of my experiences. I had partial memories. I had partial knowledge of this. But what I remembered was the beginning of an abduction. And that beginning was so terrifying, the act of being taken, that that is what caused the trauma for me. Once I became aware of what happened, once I arrived on that craft, and how calm I felt. Uh, then I, and the, my memories of what actually occurred there, I was able to understand what was going on, why it was happening, and I was able eventually to lose that fear. Uh, so it, it took many years of working through, but I would encourage anyone to do that kind of working through, to get yourself into a good support group or talk to people who are highly knowledgeable about this, talk to other experiencers um, in order to help them to come to terms with what they have gone through. Of course, we find people who uh, are also maybe they're having uh, hypnagogic hallucinations, hypnopompic hallucinations, sleep paralysis—any, um, uh, maybe they're fantasy prone. Any number of different things, but for the most part, uh, experiencers—and I have talked to psychiatrists about this too—who uh, work with experiencers, for the most part, they're just average, normal everyday people who are having extraordinary experiences in their lives
0: okay and I ask this for a very sort of selfish reason because I've had uh, and I've been very open with this on this uh, podcast series as well as in my written work that I've had a history of clinical depression mm-hmm. um, oftentimes severe uh, and uh, I am I, I want to be very cautious how I connect the dots but I will say that I had an event uh, my first real memory of anything was a, a missing time event that I had when I was 12 years old, about two hours of missing time, with an associated bright orange light in the sky. It felt like the sky lit up all orange. I didn't. I don't remember seeing any kind of craft, but um, it was. I feel it was around that time in seventh grade that I um, experienced for the first time what I now call clinical depression i didn't have any kind of name for it at the time and it was very very palpable i can put myself back in the moment and 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 uh it's hard to know whether those are two are connected but i but i recognize that they 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 sort of fit in my life calendar side by side and then i had another event in um actually in maine very close to uh gorham which i believe is that's where the first uh, experience or speak conference was held right near gorham i had an event uh where I'm quite convinced that there was a lot of activity going on in the house I was living in there, a lot of contact experience. Um, I have some direct memories that that um, and and that chapter of my life was I was you know uh, terribly uh, stricken with depression right at that time. so I, I, I look at these things as uh, as a clue in a way to my own you know larger life experiences.
1: Well, certainly, uh, a tremendous feeling of loss or trauma uh, could lead to depression. And you said that you uh, were in the seventh grade when when this happened for the first time, and then you experienced depression afterward. So you know that I would think that that could uh, possibly lead to depression, especially if uh, no one could understand. Uh, what you were going through or be supportive uh, of your experiences or if they denied your reality as being different from uh, objective reality. So, you know, it's it's uh, pretty complicated when it comes down to it. Also, academic studies have uh, indicated that there's an elevated level of dissociation as a coping mechanism for individuals who have had these experiences throughout a lifetime often beginning when they were children and having uh, the feeling of trauma that they have sort of turned inward uh, in order to cope with what is happening because they can't turn outward, they can't find support elsewhere.
0: And I would also I would say buried trauma in the sense that I didn't I don't have any direct memory of of any traumatic events.
1: Um, yes, buried trauma could could yeah. also lead to this. And I'm thinking of my uncle Barney Hill, who had so many problems. I mean, he had conscious recall of observing non-human entities on a craft looking back at him. He uh, had the feeling that he was going to be captured like a bug in a net. He attempted to escape. He ran from a field got into the car the craft is over the car there are buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the vehicle they have uh, a period of missing time that missing time uh, was not revealed until over two years later uh, through hypnosis sessions with renowned psychiatrist Dr. Benjamin Simon who in hypnotized my aunt and uncle separately and imposed amnesia at the end of each session. But getting back to Barney's experience, uh, this had a tremendous impact upon him. Uh, I don't know if it led to depression, it certainly led to a high level of anxiety. He developed bleeding ulcers uh, as a result. He uh, had these repressed memories that, uh, and and these questions about what happened during this missing time. There was physical evidence that something had occurred, but he couldn't remember what it was. And remember, he was a black man growing up in the segregated South. And so uh, any black man during that time frame would be worried about uh, being captured uh, for... Purposes that uh, were, were not benevolent at all. Uh, so that probably played in his mind as he saw this craft overhead and these non human entities looking back at him and had that sudden feeling due to their uh, movements that they had a plan and that plan was to capture him. Uh, it did have a very powerful psychological impact upon Barney.
0: You know, so I, I, I'll just say one more thing here about my own experiences. I, uh, this was before I was really looking into my own contact experiences. Uh, I could tell these stories, you know, I had stories, I could just tell them around a campfire around a dinner table and like, I saw this UFO and you know, and this kind of these kind of stories. And I just dismissed it never thought anything of it just, you know, I could say it without looking any deeper. But um, I remember working with one therapist and, and she was, you know, listening to my issues. And she I just remember her saying, like, this is trauma. You've had trauma in your life. And I'm like, I, I haven't had any trauma in my life. I don't know. I mean, I don't have anything. I can't trace suspect anything. And she's, you're, just, you're describing all the symptoms of someone who's dealt with trauma. And um, as I proceed forward with my own self-examination, you know, that, that session that I had with her where she was so straight about, about what she suspected, you know, weighs heavily on me.
1: Yes, and, you know, I think that's pretty common among experiencers, especially those who have been been taken since childhood.
0: Very interesting. You um, said earlier you had partial knowledge of of an event, and then you talked about going through the process of digging deeper and working through that and and coming to a deeper realization. Now, did this come uh, through your work with Denise I I know she was very complimentary to you as far as how much you helped her.
1: Uh, I I have to say, I'm sorry. Oh, keep going. Go ahead. Okay. I have to say that uh, I had conscious recall of events dating back to the time I was uh, about 16 or 17 years old. Um, Partial recall. Sometimes uh, I did even remember being... On a craft, or our partial recall of that as well, Uh, partial conscious recall of uh, what the ETs looked like. So uh, I'm probably unusual in that I had so much conscious recall. But in order to work through the trauma, I have to give Denise 100% of the credit for that because she worked with me. Uh, using hypnosis, also support. I worked with her, she worked with me, and she has helped me come to the point where uh, I've been able to integrate all of this information into my consciousness and to be able to accept it, to have a positive attitude toward it, and even now, if it ever happens again, and it hasn't happened since 2012, I believe, but if it ever happens again, I will be able to give myself a word, just a couple of words that she has given me that will put me into a deeply relaxed hypnotic state so that I can go through this and uh, be as aware as possible but without the terror that comes when you have this kind of experience out of the blue.
0: Okay, now this is what you're saying. I'm so envious of this, you know, that I feel like I'm, uh, it's the the way I am dealing with this is my own... uh, self-therapy in a way is exactly what we're doing right now is having this conversation in this recorded format. Uh, before we started the show, I said that, um, I, my sense is that a great number of the people who listen to these podcasts have probably had their own direct contact experience. And I'm, and I'm, and I have gotten a lot of very positive response from folks. Um, so, so what you're saying, I guess, is I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own self-therapy in a way by, by doing this program, And this website, and I'm very envious of your relationship with Denise. I thought she was wonderful. I I, spent—I literally think we sat for close to four hours at a table uh, talking, Mm -hmm. and and that was—it was really remarkable. I didn't know her very well, only through your book, and then through one short phone call that I had had before the conference, and uh, so. And now, what I will also say is that um, uh, the way you present the information, you're very cautious as a as a researcher and an author i sense not to extrapolate too far not to exaggerate and what i found with denise is what i find with most of these folks is that there is such a wealth of strange life experiences that are all folded in on you know one on top of each other you know she had stories of growing up in a haunted house type of memories and uh, which I find is very, very normal with this. My sense is that whatever is going on with this contact experience somehow opens the individual up to more high strangeness in their lives.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, in Denise's and, and my uh, commonality study, we discovered that 88% of the experiencers who participated uh, had paranormal activity in their homes and it seems to be linked to the abduction experience or ET contact experience itself.
0: I agree completely, you know, and it's it's very blurry, like where, like a poltergeist event is different than a ghost event, you know, those are all, those yes. are two different things, ghost, you know, ghost is where, uh, you know, you see the, the man in the old army uniform, like, you know, waiting by the door, and he's always waiting by the same door, and he's always wearing the same uniform, and, and poltergeist experiences is something a little more, I guess could be seen as malevolent, but by, I almost want to say more playful in a way where where things will fly off shelves lights will turn themselves on and off that is a poltergeist event not a ghost event necessarily also those two blend in with each other and i've had a very little bit of that in my life not much the one thing that is more interesting to me is that that the psychic experiences people who have these experiences and i'm pretty sure this is in the questionnaire people will report heightened psychic abilities
1: yes that is correct uh Heightened psychic abilities, heightened uh, intuitive abilities, and also uh, being uh, very sensitive to other people's emotions.
0: Yes, um, that was the, the term I use for that is empathic. Someone who's who's, yes. who's highly empathetic, who yes. has a, who has like a an inability to control their empathy, and boy, that would describes me. Like I, you know, I get like you know, I walk into a room and someone's sad, and I'm like, just whoa! I just feels like a big, great big knob got turned into my psyche. That just and just the opposite. Someone's happy, I'll 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 just I'll feel that too.
1: Yes, um, that happens to me as well. I'm I'm very very sensitive, very empathic. Yes,
0: how about your psychic abilities?:
1: uh, I am intuitive, but I can't say that I'm strongly psychic. Um, I do have to say that, well, although I haven't had these high strangeness experiences uh, on an ongoing basis in my life, thank goodness. Uh, when a craft landed on my grandparents' farm, Betty was uh, my aunt. Betty was participating in experiments with a scientific team to attempt to vector a craft in that would land on my grandparents' farm.
0: Okay, well, let me just. Uh, this is in the late
1: '60s. Is this correct? Yes, this was in 1966.
0: Okay, so this is very interesting because because this you talked about this in your talk, and this is something straight out of like. Stephen Greer's present-day protocols, maybe not straight out of, but I mean, I did not know that this was going on at the time where people would would use intention, the power of their own intention, to, let's say, vector in craft. That that just strikes me as very unusual now, almost 50 years ago that this was taking place. I did not really realize that that was happening.
1: Uh, yes, and it was being done confidentially. Uh, I don't think it was ever published until I wrote about it in uh, my book, uh, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Uh, so it's it's in the book, and I have begun to speak about this when I lecture. But uh, Betty was successful in vectoring in a craft one came in it sheared off the tops of some trees it left physical trace evidence on the ground that was later in uh, one little piece of this was uh, examined in a laboratory but the the point that i want to make is my childhood home was in, within 500 feet of the spot where this craft landed it was observed by my grandmother and by a commercial pilot who was returning home from work. It woke my younger brother up, he said, uh, that night as well. And after that occurred, we started to have this poltergeist activity in my childhood home. Light orbs that it seemed to be intelligently controlled that would dart around the house. They were seen by others And at one time, coat hangers lifted out of a bedroom closet, flew across the room and landed on uh, my boyfriend. He he and I were visiting to go deep sea fishing with my parents the next day when I was in college. Uh, There was a lot of this kind of activity going on in the house. Uh, It is not going on today as far as I know. Uh, my, mo- my mother has passed away and the house has been sold. But it did occur uh, in the home after that craft landed. Uh, it did not occur before that, as far as I know. And I've interviewed many fa- family members about this. I also have Betty's account of uh, this time frame in writing.
0: Fascinating. So fascinating. Because this is just, you know, the the assumption is that, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill event was sort of a one-off. And, you know, that that is not how it seems to play out in the lives of most people who have had the contact experiences. And it certainly doesn't seem like it played out in their lives like that either. So
1: I don't think that it did play out like that as a one-time experience. What I found is, uh, again, referring back to the commonality study that I did with Denise Stoner, uh, we found that out of 50 participants, 48 felt that they had been taken numerous times. Uh, the other two had none of the characteristics of the other experiencers, uh, but they did have recall of being taken. I suspect that the uh, the ETs might have taken them and, and discovered that they didn't have whatever characteristics they were looking for and released them. So two had only one experience. The other 48 had multiple experiences.
0: That is so interesting. You grew up in an environment where you were obviously very close to both Betty and Barney.
1: That's correct.
0: And you probably got to see firsthand the intense public ridicule. And I wouldn't say out and out venom is the way the, let's say the populace at large, like dealt with this, Uh the, the, these, their experiences, which, you know, are shared by a lot of people. Um That was unknown at the time, really, that there was so many people who were having these experiences unknown at the time in any kind of, Big way, let's say, but um, that must have weighed heavily on you when it when it came time for you to come forward, knowing their experiences of of being so deeply ridiculed.
1: Well, I have to say, first of all, Betty and Barney had never intended to go public with their experiences. It was uh, done as the result of a violation of confidentiality that read, led to five newspaper articles in, in the Boston Traveler. It was very, very upsetting to them. They thought that they would lose their jobs. They're standing in the community. My Uncle Barney had been appointed to serve on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission State Advisory Committee. He had received awards for his work in the state of New Hampshire from uh, Sergeant Shriver through the Office of Economic Opportunity. He was well-known and highly regarded, in the state for his very positive activities, political activities in New Hampshire. Uh, they thought they were going to lose their jobs. They didn't lose their jobs. Uh, I do think that they lost uh, a little bit of their credibility in terms of the political work that they were doing. Um, and But I have to say that many people, especially people who knew them, knew that they were credible, rational, upstanding individuals. They wouldn't make something like this up. It was a small group of very vocal debunkers who came forward and uh, through ridicule and through uh, taking apart bit by bit their story and constructing a false scenario uh, had an impact upon the public's perception of what actually happened. And the unfortunate thing is this misinformation or disinformation, whatever it was, was believed by scientists like Carl Sagan, like Dr. Susan Clancy. Uh, who was a postgraduate uh, doctoral student? Oh God, at yeah, like,
0: don't even just the mere mention. You of You know her who she? Yes, oh yeah, yeah. she's like pushing it all. Oh, I'm so study. angry that that. Yes, yeah. my sense but, is that that she was uh, like uh, John Mack died at Harvard, and and I just sense. That like there was within the faculty, there was a bunch of folks that were like, "Oh God, he's gone. Let's we've got to crank something out right away, right now, to clear our names of that of this (laughs) of that awful mess." And and Susan Clancy, like uh you know like the golden retriever that like sort of is pathetic and will like I'll do anything for my master. I'm I'm sorry, I'm ranting right now, but oh my gosh, that book made me crazy.
1: Yes, it it was so distorted. Uh, It was so incorrect factually that and and what she apparently did is she although she states that she read everything that she could find that was ever written about uh the experiences she spoke about in in her book uh she was wrong uh, she, uh fact by fact over and over again the only, and the only place where uh you can find this inaccurate information uh, on a very large scale, is in the debunkers' writing, because they've taken apart these experiences and they've reconstructed them with false information to cause the general public to believe that none of this is real. I mean, I, uh, there are some ufologists who have gotten the facts wrong, too, uh, but uh, not in the way that the, uh, the debunkers have.
0: Yeah, so um I when I spoke to Denise, uh, now now once again I, I was not in the room. I was I was actually getting a Reiki session right outside the door there with uh uh Jack, uh who you know I think, and then um also Pam, who lives uh I'm just gonna use first names, uh who lives I think quite close to Portland. <laughs> and uh so I was laying on a table getting a Reiki session and and you can hear it in the audio there was a giant crazy storm. I was right next to these great big windows. It was all, it it poured down rain for just a few minutes. Like it on, there was, it rained as hard as you ever see it raining for, you know, 10 minutes. And that was the 10 minutes where you started talking about your own experiences. You can clearly hear it pounding on the roof of the hotel while you were talking. Um, and then Denise like basically took me aside, uh, when when I had that long conversation with her and she kind of like rolled her eyes and said, like, I've known Kathleen for a long time. I have never seen her so forceful and so forthright, you know, at the podium. And it's there, it is right there in, in your talk. You are, you are on fire when you talk about your own experiences.
1: Yes. And it was the first time I'd ever spoken publicly about that. Um, and, you know, what I said is that my mother and I might have been taken in 1966. We both had memories of it. We had a close encounter and missing time. It was investigated long ago, confidentially. Um, we, I tested normal on psychological screenings. I don't think my mother wa- ha- uh, was given psychological screenings. Uh, there's nothing unusual about... My experiences, they're just like anyone else's, and I have no plans to write a book about my personal experiences. But, you know, when I started to say this, uh, the crowd started to go wild and started to clap furiously. And so I raised my voice, and, and I feel very passionate as well, about why I decided to step out of the shadows, despite the possibility of ridicule, and, and I said it, that it was for the benefit of all experiences. It's time to end the laughter. It's time to end the ridicule. It's time to end the discrimination. It's time to move forward with the goal of understanding. By collaborating with one another, we'll gain understanding. Uh, and I said, experiencers use night, the strength in unity, We have the right to be treated with respect and consideration, the right to be free from harassment and humiliation, the right to dignity, the right to equal employment, the right to academic freedom, and the right to advance in one's career, even if we are experiencers or we have an academic interest in that topic
0: uh, well said. Yes, uh, I agree uh, completely. The crowd did go wild. I was I kind of broke my heart that I missed it. Uh, I had a oh, like from my own experiences coming forward, like I basically came forward talking about my experiences on this podcast at a point when I was like, just questioning them. I'm like, God, I've had these odd experiences in my life. And I'm using my real name and I don't quite know what to make of it. And And, and it was, you know, like I always left myself a great big out, right? You know, so I was never really saying that I've had these, like, I've never came to the conclusion. And then over the, I guess it's almost five years now that I've been doing this, you know, one step at a time, I just got closer and closer and closer to realizing that like, oh, crap, this is true. And, and then an event happened in 2013 in, in uh, March 10th that uh, just sealed the deal. And at that point, I was, uh, I, I was no longer on the fence, and it was, it was absolutely confirmed to me. So I sort of came forward using my real name by accident because I started using my real name just as I was, you know, talking about synchronicities and odd little paranormal things and maybe some UFO sightings. And then, uh, you know, I, I did not know that that's what the future would bring.
1: Yes, and, you know, I came forward using my own name as Betty's niece many, many years ago, uh, always planning only to be a uh, a researcher and investigator and a writer uh, on this topic. And uh, now, you know, my experiences have been revealed using my own name as well. And I have to give you a lot of credit for coming forward Uh, using your own name people would have recognized your voice anyway so you know you probably came into it sort of in in the way that i did as well but uh, i'm fascinated by what you said about your experience uh, in march of 2013 did you have conscious continuous recall of that
0: well, that was, I spoke about that in the talk that I gave, and it was about the last 15, 20 minutes of the talk where it's a rather complicated story where I uh, was coming back from the UFO conference, in where, which is now in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, and mm-hmm. I, which I do. I sleep on the side of the road. I love it. I was out in the desert, and it was glorious, and I take these little back roads on purpose, and I slept in this beautiful spot on the side of the road, and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, under a perfectly clear, cold, cloudless night. I had a great big, thick winter sleeping bag. I love it. I had a big, thick pad a big pillow, and sleeping out under the stars was just great. And I looked up on this hillside, and I said, that looks just like a landed flying saucer. And I sat and stared at this thing for a half hour and it just sat there and i just assumed no that's a house i don't understand like and i just and i'm convinced that there was some form of mind control taking place that was distorting what i was seeing like basically mm-hmm. i was seeing it as a big round house and um i have since been back to that place that house would have had to have been enormous mm-hmm. so it wasn't just like a little you know tent or something up there and i have gone back to that site since then there's nothing there and that event triggered a bunch of other memories to come forward as well as, which I had documented and there wasn't like, they weren't like buried memories. There were three events that took place in fairly close proximity in Southern Utah. I had a psychic event. I'm telling this very fast right now. I had a psychic event where I saw a map in my mind's eye and it was a map with a straight line and three dots on it. Mm -hmm. And I knew exactly what the three dots were and I knew exactly what the straight line was. And I just sat down and made a map on my computer using uh, Google Maps. With modern you know, like old technology, right? A pencil and, and a paper map. Like, if I put a pencil line across a paper map, you know, if you zoomed in close on that pencil line, that pencil line could be a few miles thick. So with modern map making, using a computer, I can make that line one pixel thick and zoom right in on it. And these three events that spanned over 231 miles were I'm not exaggerating. They lined up to the millimeter. Mm-hmm. The three separate events, and th- what was involved in staging that, what was involved in me having the psychic experience of remembering, you know, of, of seeing that map. Um, it it just it just felt like it felt like um, as soon as I saw these three things line up on the map, it was like, oh, my old life is gone. All that questioning is gone. My new life has begun. It's a new life where I don't question this stuff anymore. I will say I spent an enormous amount of energy with a tape loop in my head going, is this real? Did this really happen? Could it be possible? I can't believe it's me. No, it's impossible. couldn't be me. It couldn't happen. It didn't happen, but maybe it did, but maybe it did, but maybe it didn't. I, I wasted so much energy with that spinning tape loop in my head. That ended. When I put that one line in a map and lined up those three separate, what I feel strongly saying are three separate UFO contact events. And, and to stage that would have taken, I mean, it would have taken years because those events all took place over about four years. Uh, you know, how on earth all these little synchronistic, you know, pieces on the chessboard aligned just perfectly... Uh, so anyway, so there's, that is a very short version to tell it correctly. It takes about a half hour.
1: Uh, to yes. Tell it to... And I do. Thanks for refreshing my memory. I, I did attend your lecture and, uh, so appreciate the, that, the fact that you refreshed my memory on that. And it is such a good feeling when we finally have confirmation that, uh, you know, after wondering for many, many years, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together when you actually have all of those pieces. uh, I think that uh, it has a calming effect.
0: Um, I was at a conference, uh, the the UFO Congress, this was only a few years ago, and I walked up to Lee Spiegel, who was one of the attendees. I think he might have been speaking there. I think he might have been hosting it, actually, standing on stage and introducing folks. And I walked up to him and said... uh, you know, like, hey, I read your your UFO reporting in the Huffington Post, and uh, I just wanted to say, like, I never see you posting anything about abductions. And he very straight, very plainly, very pragmatically said, "Oh, you know, I do that on purpose. Uh, you know, we don't cover that because we just don't want to turn off the audience. We don't want to. We don't want to um, repel the audience or the readership with anything that's too fringe." And I you know like whatever that was basically dealing with my direct experience and so then a couple minutes later literally I just walked right from him and I walked over to James Fox who who is uh, working on a documentary now and I knew he was working on a feature length documentary on the UFO thing and I said hey um so in this upcoming documentary are you going to cover the the abduction thing and he pretty much gave me the same answer he said oh no no we're not going to cover that we just don't want to lose the audience you know we just want to we want to be taken seriously and you know I, it made me feel really crappy <laughs> to hear that from both these folks, uh, and I didn't like it. And I and I and uh, actually, I have to say that James Fox was very nice about it. He he recognized that, uh, like he could sort of see it in my face that, like, oh God, like how cr-, you know. And he he actually reached out and contacted me. He he called me some uh, about a week later and apologized, and 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 we had a good conversation. So so, you, you know, like I understand they're, where they're coming from. But at the same time, I, I, it, it's, it it feels crappy, uh, and I just was. I mean, you must sense the same thing too.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I do believe that the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience was covered in the Huffington Post at at one time. Um, I could be incorrect, but I think that Lee did cover it uh, after my book was released, or maybe uh, at the time of the 50th anniversary of their event. Uh, but getting back to uh, the old problem of uh, having mainstream media, maybe not quite mainstream, cover this topic, uh, many individuals, and this goes back uh, many, many years, would like to garner scientific interest in the topic of UFOs. And when you start talking about alien abductions, it turns some people off. Uh, They want to stick with the nuts and bolts science. That is what uh, traditional physical scientists do in this country and and elsewhere as well. And you get into too much psychology when you bring in uh, the alien abduction phenomenon. Uh, I have a letter dating back to the 1960s from Dr. James McDonald, uh, physicist from uh, the uh, University of Arizona in Tucson, probably the most scientific uh, outstanding ufologist who ever lived. and he had written this letter to my uncle, Barney Hill. He had a great deal of interest in the case. He had spoken with Dr. Simon about it, but he was not going to write anything about it because he thought to do so would turn off uh, mainstream scientists, and he was trying to garner this interest from mainstream science. Uh, You know, as far as I'm concerned... We've been trying to do this for how long? 50, 60 years? (laughs) It hasn't worked? (laughs) Let's move on and uh, take a serious scientific interest in this topic overall. Let's not uh, stick with simply nuts and bolts evidence. I mean, I, I really strongly believe that we need to continue that part of it, too. We need to continue to examine the evidence. But uh, there are other acceptable forms of research as well.
0: And and I will say, oh, God, okay. So, yeah, so my sense is, you know, like, I don't pretend to be a scientific researcher. You know, like in fact, I get a little laugh. I've given the talk a couple times, and, and there was a fellow who gave me a kind of a hard time, and he kind of was, you could tell he was frustrated. And he said, ah, your research, it's just not scientific. And I said, what do I care? I'm not a scientist and uh and so what i feel like i'm doing is more like i'm in the role of the folklorist in a way where i'm sharing these stories i'm collecting these stories and i'm my 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 uh i am drawn to the weirder stuff i'm doing this research with owls i'm finding it is incredibly fruitful like i'm finding powerful stories from real people people i trust uh like people who don't know each other will tell me very similar stories in a way, confirming these very strange owl stories. And I, when I say owl stories, I, you know, there's obviously the screen memory aspect, and then there's what I feel are very real owls showing up for reasons I do not understand. I speculate what it might mean, but that's what I'm doing. I'm very clear that I'm speculating when I do that. So there is this stuff that is outside the boundaries. Here, I'll tell you this little story. So I'm walking through. I've met Clifford Cliff very briefly one year, I saw him the next year at the conference. I walked right up to him, and uh, he's a jolly fellow. And I said, "Hey, Cliff, you know what's up?" And he's like, "Hey, how you doing?" He pumps my hand. We shake hands, and he's just as amiable as he can be. And I said, "Yeah, well, I'm doing my own research." And oh, oh what are you researching? And it's like, well, you know, I'm researching this overlapping experience that shows up uh, with owls. And UFO abductees, there's something going on with owls in, in in UFO abductees, and he just looked at me and he was just like, "Oh, gotta go!" and he just w- turned around on his heels and walked <laughs> away. And like, I can't really blame him in a way, but there is this aspect in this research of stuff that is so weird that it that it, I mean, it challenges me. Like, I feel like I'm already immersed in the weird stuff and the really weird stuff. Like, I'm I'm challenged by it, but I have to proceed forward and document it somehow. And so, 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 yes, we have to move forward. Like, I mean, we have spent 70 years now measuring burn marks in farmer's fields and and all we have gotten, uh, perhaps we've moved our knowledge ahead a little bit, but all we have in a way is just filled up a bunch of file cabinets full of the same reports over and over and over and over again. And I am just, I am not interested in adding more to that. I want to... I'm very drawn to, you know, maybe I'm going down a false alley, and if I do, I'll say it, you know, if, if that's the conclusion I come to. But I feel v- it's vitally important that folks out there, researchers, people, share their experiences because there are these outlying, strange data points that, that nobody wants to address that I find are fascinating. And and I think it was Carla Turner who said, we are going to solve this overall mystery through the outlying data points.
1: And I think that she was probably correct. And I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't study it scientifically. I think we should continue, but we should use different fields of science as well, uh, such as quantum physics, such as social science. And that's where I'm coming from. It is possible to study this owl phenomenon using social science to, you could uh, determine uh, how many experiencers, uh, what percentage of experiencers have had this kind of owl experience initially. Uh, what were the characteristics of the owl? How tall was it? What color was it? What did its eyes look like? All of these different uh, characteristics to in order to determine Uh, What is going on here? You might want to ask uh, if this is a matter of, uh, or if the experiencer thought it was a matter of the E.T., uh, altering the human's perception through mind control to cause them to believe they were observing an owl when it was actually an E.T., uh, or exactly what was going on here? Uh, was it a real large physical owl? So, you know, there are many ways to do that. I don't, I'm not saying throw out the science. I'm just saying expand upon what we have already.
0: Yes, and I and I agree. Like, this, this, certain things can be, these these things can be addressed using the scientific method. Uh, I, like, I'm an artist. Like, I, I, that's what I do for a living. I, I draw, and I have since I was a little kid, so I, I feel like I'm, I don't want to say loosey goosey with the way I I approach this because I feel like I try to stay grounded. But um, you know what I'm doing, I guess, is more collecting stories, collecting reports, and uh, uh, and I try to do it in a in a oh you know very logical and even keeled way. Though I have you know it'd be very difficult for me to to put together, let's say, a spreadsheet of of uh, these people's experiences. Simply because you know, like they're, they're, it, the, it would be, it would be hard. It would be hard to. They're to
1: qualitative of instead of quantitative. Exactly. And it, yeah. It would probably be difficult for you to um, reduce these to uh, a quantitative kind of report.
0: Yes, where like you like we'd fill out a like a checklist on a on a on a survey type thing. Yes. With like that no that a uh, MUFON has. You know what? Actually, I, someone gave me uh, the updated field investigation manuals. Not manuals, the checklists that the mm-hmm. reports, and and there are some things in there that I was actually very impressed that Mufon had. You know, what, it, you know, the questions were, um, you know, has your, oh, I, I would have to look it up. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but there were a few questions in there like, have you had paranormal or psychic experiences since your UFO? Site. that's
1: because i wrote that part of the manual Well, god
0: bless you for that because <laughs> that was that was exactly what i would make fun of mufon for for not having that in there and, and then based i checked upon it and was, it
1: was
0: is based yeah. on anyone who's even tipped their toe into this the, the abduction lore has got to recognize it right away and if they're not they're being you know they're they're you know you got to try hard not to see the, the the psychic or the uh paranormal aspects uh, in the in the ufo contact you gotta, you gotta purposely turn a part of your brain off to avoid not seeing that. Um, you don't have to talk to a to a witness for ten minutes before you these stories start pouring out of them.
1: That's true, and you know one of the the big challenges is to be able to determine whether this is uh, an experience with extraterrestrial beings or if it is more of a paranormal experience with uh, parasitic entities who are feeding off the human's emotions.
0: Absolutely, and that, that, you know, that's where these things blur together. And in my sense, you know, all, all I need to do as a researcher is a way is just say that, you know, this is curious. Sometimes these things blur together. I don't have an answer. And then just explore both of those aspects, which I feel I have done um, in some of the, you know, written work and some of these interviews.
1: And Denise Stoner and I are doing the same thing. Hey, but hey, we're trying to keep it as scientific as possible.
0: What's what's next on your agenda? What's coming up? Do you have any other books projects you're working on?
1: Oh, I'm working on another book project right now. And uh, unfortunately, my publisher uh, will not let me uh, reveal the name of it or what it is about. They, they hold that right, but uh, it will probably come out within the next year and a half or so, I would say. Uh, Are you working and-
0: with Denise on this?
1: No, I'm not. Uh I'm not working with Denise on this.
0: What about Stanton? Are you working with Stanton? Well, yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> I can say I'm working with Stanton on it. It's requiring a tremendous amount of research. It's going to take us quite a while to to write this book. But I think it's going to give some fascinating information when it's finally published.
0: Well, that's great cuz it's so so um well good for Stanton cuz he's he uh Whatever he's almost the poster child for the the nuts and bolts researcher. You know, he's a data yes, hound. He and, yes, and, he is. And then the fact that he's working with you, I remember I even I asked you about this when we spoke at the conference initially when we first met, maybe 2010. And uh, I remember like, wow, how does, you know, like I just pictured Stanton as being, I don't want to say a stodgy fuddy dud. That's maybe the wrong way to put it. But I just didn't, I didn't really see him going down these avenues you know obviously he had written that that uh, chapter in the captured book on the star map yes um, so it was it was it was actually very heartening to me to know that he was involved with with you as far as a writing partner
1: well Stan realizes that I have a scientific mind that I have a background in social science he respects that and uh, feels that we Uh, work together in a complementary fashion and I do as well I I enjoy working with him because in many ways Stan and I think alike Uh, the scientific part of our uh, brains uh, think alike and so it's very very good uh, for us to to work together uh, me as a social scientist and him as uh, a physicist a physical scientist
0: very interesting. Fascinating. You know, it's, it seems like we've got a great interview here, so I'm very happy with what we have. And is there anything you feel like you want to say to, uh, to sum this all up?
1: <laughs> well, uh, there, I'd, I'd like to give some more information. Uh, I don't know if you have heard of an organization. Uh, the acronym is FREE. It's the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters.
0: Oh, yes, I'm very familiar with it. I'm on uh, Ray's uh, mailing list. Uh, if I had the time, I would jump in and dedicate a bunch more time. I did help him with his questionnaire that, that he's put out, um, uh, mostly just phraseology of the way some things were phrased coming from advertising. I, I feel like I've got a pretty strong grounding in just you know making written stuff more simple. So, yes, yeah, so, and in fact, I've talked to Ray endlessly on the phone. Uh, him and I have, have uh, the first conversation we had on the phone – Ay 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 good grief like we were finishing each other's sentences it was kind of we were both so amped up it was uh yeah yes yeah. so um i am very familiar with free and and it was ray hernandez is the fellow who is um sort of spearheading the organization
1: he, he is i am on the uh advisory board and i'm also on the research committee and there is a questionnaire And so if you are an experiencer, I actually helped Ray with the wording and the the ideas on this questionnaire, as well as did other members of the research committee at meetings that we had. And uh, I would like to ask experiencers who are listening to go to experiencer.co. It's not com, it's co. And uh, you can access the questionnaire too. Uh, there, and uh, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would fill that out to help with the continuation of our research.
0: Very good, and I and I actually w- I'm looking forward. to, There's going to be a day when I'm going to interview Ray. I've been just sort of busy with my life here. Uh, I got I was so excited to meet him at the conference. He's a he's kind of a you know it's very interesting. I I want to be careful how I phrase this. Like he is you know like I think any organization in its genesis. It depends on the charisma and the dedication and the energy of, like, an individual to get that ball rolling. And I am amazingly impressed with, uh, with Ray's uh, just enthusiasm for this.
1: I am as well. And, and to me, it's amazing that he has been able to put together a panel of leading theoretical physicists such as Edgar Mitchell. Uh, Dr. Rudy Shield, who, is simply, uh, who recently retired from the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysics Laboratory, and many others who are working on part of uh, this problem, and also leading researchers from around the world who are working with experiencers, all types of experiencers, in order to attempt to gain an understanding of what is actually going on here.
0: And then I will also say that that uh, Ray's story, how this all came into being, I mean, it is a, it is a it is a, uh, a connect the dots of synchronistic stuff, paranormal stuff. Uh, like it seems like staged UFO events, purposely to I want to say kick him in the ass and 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 wake him up. Uh,
1: could have been. I mean. Uh... Uh, from my memory, and I've talked to him uh, at length as well, but uh, it had to do with the healing of the family dog. And uh, his wife is a devout Catholic, and and this apparition appeared uh, in their living room. The dog uh, had been sent home. It was near death. They wanted to keep the dog home for a little while longer before they had to have it put down. It uh, It's hind legs were paralyzed uh this apparition appeared the dog was healed and when the wife called ray down into the living room and when he went down here was his little dog seeming young again running around uh had the use of its legs back uh it was really almost a miraculous story uh, that had possible religious implications as well but then he uh later saw you a UFO hovering over his neighborhood this huge UFO so you know what is the connection here there are so many questions that we don't have answers for But if everyone comes together, leading researchers from around the world, and share our experiences, our knowledge, perhaps we'll find some answers.
0: We can only um, proceed forward with, with as much bravery as we can possibly muster. And that goes to the – I'm going to – that is my challenge. I'm going to put that out to the scientific research community. I just see them. I'm going to be very frank here. I see them as a bunch of cowards who will not address this issue because of funding, because of ridicule, because of the stigma that's been embedded within the the scientific community. And I just feel like as soon as the first crack appears in the dam – there is the potential for the whole dam to collapse, and then the scientific community to take this seriously. It, it needs to happen, and the the overall UFO topic is extremely complex, and and the most complex of all is the is the UFO contact experience.
1: Absolutely, and perhaps over time, uh, maybe a generation from now, two generations from now. Oh, there I'm, in a, will I'm be... in a bigger hurry
0: than that. I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> well, I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm in a hurry too,
1: but, but I'm, not, I'm not going to hold my breath. Let me put it that way. But, you know, you have to think about the position that these scientists are in. Uh, I know many scientists who have an interest in this topic who uh, are not able to use their names because their uh, funding, their government funding, and that's the key, government funding, Depends upon uh, their uh, disregard of UFO phenomena that that is uh, politically incorrect. That is something that you simply cannot do as long as you work for this company uh, under government funding because you might lose your funding. Uh, you know, you have other projects to work on. You have families to support. You have yourself to support. So if you do it at all, you have to do it quietly.
0: Ooh, I Two generations is too long. I, I want to I do. So my sense is that all I can do at the ground level here, I got this little thing that takes up all my time. I'm doing this little podcast. I write these little essays. I'm working on a book project. You know, like eh, like all I can do is my own best work from the ground up. You know what I mean? I it's not I I'm in no position to like pound on any scientist's door at some lab at some college. You know that's and tell them you know what they should and shouldn't do. All I can do at my end is do the best possible work I can do with as much honesty as I can as I can muster, and then hopefully that will change the the overall environment from the grassroots up. Because uh, I I am not in a position to. To go to the scientific establishment and and sort of pester them into doing what I want them to do. All I can do is 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 change the world. You know, the the little ripples that I put in the pond, hopefully, will have a will have an impact on the on the larger overall pond as well as the 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 collective way we all like everyone humanity looks at this. Um,
1: And I think that that is what all of us are doing. I have to tell you that I've received very, very positive feedback from many, many scientists for the work that I do uh, as a social scientist. So I've been pleased with that. Uh, At least I know that they have respect for the work that I'm doing.
0: As do I. Hey, this has been great. I want to thank you so much. This has been a, this has been wonderful and I and I really feel uh, and I and I haven't said it. I I guess I turn to think of what I've said so far in the interview, but I am so grateful and and proud and full of respect that you did what you did on that podium uh back 2 months ago where you came forward and 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 talked about the fact that you too share these very challenging and complicated experiences.
1: Oh, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you one never knows uh, what direction this is going to go in, and I'm so pleased that uh, I've received so many positive responses Good. from well, doing so. and
0: you deserve, you deserve that. I suspect there will be some ridicule peppered in there. My sense is that it's now, you know, 50 years after Betty and Barney Hill. I suspect that the um, ridicule will be minimal, to so close to minimal that it'll be almost non existent. That is my sense. Um, just well, having come forward with my own uh, experiences, I feel like I've. I
1: think you're correct. Uh, I already do receive it, ridicule, and I have for quite a long time now, uh, from a small group. Of very negative individuals who want to uh, accuse me of uh, attention seeking and and being in this for the tremendous amount of money that <laughs> I'm making from it. <laughs> that is a laugh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, but but there are some highly negative individuals who will uh, make these negative comments in order to uh, attempt to affect my behavior, and the. It has no impact upon me.
0: Yes, and and I and I've gotten very little negative feedback, and and I'm very very grateful for that, and I'm glad that uh, I mean I just look at Whitley Strieber who came out a you know 25 years ago, and and the um, you know the shitstorm that rained down on him, and uh, and what has happened in the following 25 years where uh, you know it's, it's still fringe, but I feel like the derision is not as caustic. As it would have been if we just turned the clock back a decade, or especially two decades. I agree. Yeah. Well, well, congratulations! I look forward to thank your new you. book. I, I'm, I'm very. You, I understand that your publishers don't want you to tell us about it, but I'm, you made me very curious.
1: And uh, <laughs> well, my best wishes to you too on your book.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you. That should be, if all goes according to plan, it should be out next spring sometime. Oh, great. Maybe. Let's. I'm. I, this. Like. I. I. Uh, I'm not a writer by, tr- by trade, and I have to grit my teeth to, to sort of move forward, and I'm moving forward at a glacial pace. So uh, I feel the content is good, but uh, oh, God, it is slow going for me. So, hey, thanks so much. I will, and I look forward okay. to talking to you again soon. Okay. Have good a wonderful rest you. of the day.
1: Thank you. You too. Bye bye.
0: Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in at the end of the editing process. I want to add a clip. Uh, this is an eight minute long excerpt from a YouTube video uh, where Kathleen uh, comes forward with her experiences. This took place at the Experiencers Speak Conference, which was held in Portland, Maine, earlier this year, 2004, and that would have been in early September of this year. Now, at the very beginning of this clip of this excerpt she is reading from a plaque and this is a historical marker on a roadside in New Hampshire and this is dedicated to her aunt and uncle Betty and Barney Hill and their experience uh, in the early 60s and I think this was this this plaque was posted on the 50th anniversary what is interesting is you can hear the pounding rain begin when she talks about her aunt and uncle and then this leads right into her own uh, coming forward um the, the pounding rain was interesting. It just felt like the heavens were unleashing. Very interesting that nature itself was unloading right at the same moment here. So after she reads from the plaque, uh, then she reads a few comments that were made by folks within the scientific community about her research. And, and, and she does this on purpose, you know, f- for an effect. Uh, then after that, she spills the beans and comes forward with her own UFO experiences. And this is pretty dramatic. What is interesting is Kathleen, I've met her many times at conferences and talked to her on the phone at length. She is a very calm and thoughtful speaker. She is very measured and very cautious and uh, almost to the point where it's a little disarming. She's very even-tempered and she speaks very slowly. You'll hear that in the interview. So it is very jarring in a way when she takes on this kind of Evangelistic tone, uh, and she talked about that in the interview. How she was kind of revved up by the uh, by the power of the audience. This is a big deal. What she did here, uh, the the audio quality is is uh, not the greatest, but you can clearly hear everything she's saying here. Uh, this little audio clip is about eight minutes long, and I'll chime in at the end here. So yes, this is an important real deal event that uh, uh, someone in the UFO research community is coming forward with her own firsthand experiences. Here we go.
1: On the night of September nineteen to 20th, 1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of lost time while driving south on Route 3 near Lincoln. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit, cigar-shaped craft the next day, but were not public with their story until it was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. I'm well-known as uh, a UFO and abduction researcher. I work independently but I've been a member of MUFON since 1991. I'm also a member of FREE, as Peter mentioned. I just want to uh, read some of the comments that uh, have been published online about my work. Uh, One person wrote, Kathleen Martin is a scholar, a true investigator, but also she has the courage to tackle this subject head on. Another wrote, I do not believe I have ever heard anyone approaching the abduction experiencers, commonalities, in such a controlled, scientific manner. And these are scientists who are writing this. You are quite the knowledgeable person when it comes to this field. This was in a personal correspondence. I have read your most recent book, and I appreciate your scientific rigor. The reason I wanted to read these is that some of us who do this work are attacked. I haven't been attacked very often, but I have been attacked fairly recently by two individuals who are running around stating that I am unscientific and paranoid. Two individuals, compared to hundreds of individuals probably, who have made positive comments about my work. But these two do harass me from time to time. This is my statement. I'm stepping forward for the first time, and I'm going to read this to you. Until recently, I've been told a little, I I had been a little more than skeptical about my experiences My background in science cautioned me to apply Occam's razor to each separate event. It assisted me in dismissing my own events as being fantastic and unreal, but self-delusion and denial have collapsed under the weight of the evidence. Regardless of how satisfying my normal life is and has been, I can no longer write off my past experiences. To do so would be dishonest and self-deceiving. What I'm about to tell you today is that in 1966 my mother and I might have been taken. We each had independent memories of finding ourselves inside what we believe was a UFO. I was lying on a table undergoing an examination. Later I had a close encounter after seeing the UFO and a missing time event. This was investigated long ago with confidentiality I wanted not only anonymity. I didn't want anyone stating that it was Betty Hill's niece because I wanted to have a normal life. I knew how badly Betty was attacked. But recently, many people have come to me and they knew about my experience. I've confided this in in many researchers and also in the experiencers that I work with. No one has ever violated confidentiality in my case, and I want to thank everyone who kept my secret for so long. But this is what I am here to tell you today, that it is not a secret any longer. I have no intention of speaking in great detail about this. My experiences are the same as anyone else's. There's nothing special about me or about any of this. My focus is as an advocate for experiences, as a researcher. And I think that it's time for experiencers to unite, to come together to attempt to solve this mystery. And I think that if we all work together, that we might be able to do that. There has to be more communication, and there has to be more cooperation among researchers, and not competition. to end the ridicule, to end the discrimination. Throughout history, certain minority groups have been targeted. It has been politically acceptable for people to ridicule people who are different, people of color, people of different cultures, people who have disabilities, people who are gay. People have been successful in overcoming the discrimination, and it is time for experiencers to stand up, to unite, to come together and say it is time to stop the ridicule. It is not okay to be seated in a restaurant and to have someone, even a friend of yours, come up to your table and go, woo It is not okay for someone who expresses an interest in UFOs to be sitting privately and quietly in a restaurant and have someone who knows of their interest from across the room yell, this is Fred, this is the guy who claims to be seeing UFOs. When Fred isn't even claiming that, he's only a MUFON member interested in learning about this. The ridicule factor is too great. It keeps people down. It prevents the public from knowing about what is happening to most of the people in this room and to those people who feel that they cannot come forward because of the discrimination, because they might lose their jobs, because if they have professional positions, they might not advance in their careers. I never mentioned this when I had a professional career for that very reason. The ridicule factor keeps many of us down and it's time for that to end. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, for me, that is powerful stuff, and that um, that's a display of bravery that I respect enormously. So, so I was not actually in the conference room in the audience during that talk. I was just outside the door. You can actually hear the door open and close a little bit. That's where the microphone was that was recording this. So I was just outside that door on a table, a massage table, getting a Reiki session done, which I've actually never had before in that kind of format. And there were two Reiki therapists. Uh, and I will also imply that these Reiki therapists are also have had the direct UFO contact experience. And that combination is very common. I don't understand it, but Reiki therapy and UFO abduction go hand in hand. Uh, not 100%, but enough that there's a very clear pattern, in my, in my opinion. Uh, so, I'm on the table I'm, uh, I'm going to be very cautious here. I'm going to only use first names. There was a woman, Pam, and a man, Jack, who were doing the session for me. lasted maybe 20 minutes or so. Uh, I just laid on the table, closed my eyes. Now, you know, I'm very cautious here. They were talking about realigning my energies and things like that. Uh, and they would put their hands above me, just run their hands over me. When the woman, Pam, put her hand over my head, I could feel a sort of static electricity charge. Sort of like, you know, moving my hand above my cat on a dry winter night when the static electricity seems to be really high in my house. But I could I could, I could sense that very clearly. She didn't touch me, but I sensed that static charge in a way. Now, a couple things happened. I was lying there on the table during that big, powerful rainstorm that, that unleashed, And I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, But but one thing that was interesting was that Pam... Now, I had my eyes closed, so I did not see this or sense this. We talked about it afterwards. And uh, periodically through the the, the session, I felt this tickle in the back of my throat and this kind of strong urge to cough. So I didn't want to cough straight up into someone. So I turned my head away from, from where she was standing at the edge of the massage table and coughed a few times. And I think that happened three or four times where I was just sort of overcome with this tickle. And then I would cough. And I think it was on the third or fourth time that I heard uh, Jack and Pam laughing. And I kind of like said, hey, what's up? And they were like, you know, every time Pam puts her hand above your throat, you start to cough. I didn't quite know what to make of that, I, you know. So, uh, but they—they uh, they thought it was pretty funny that they she would move her hand. There's no way for me to know where her hand was. My eyes was closed, near my throat, and I would cough. Now, afterwards, she kind of found me in the hallway, and she said, "Here's what I'm being told." I think that's the way she phrased it. She kind of phrased it in a way that it wasn't like like her own idea. Let's say she said, uh, "Here's what I'm. Here's what I sense." That the tickle in your throat was clearing your throat chakra, and and to her that meant that I needed to communicate more and talk about this stuff more. Um, that seems to make some sense. I can't really speak to the concrete, factual reality of what she said, though I can say that I certainly did cough and and, uh, and they certainly did laugh at me because it happened every time she put her hand over my throat. Now, now here's what I think is very interesting. Uh, I was given information, uh, metaphorically, I guess, I was given information about coming forward, talking about this stuff, at the same time... Hard to know exactly, but roughly at the same time that Kathleen Martin was standing at a podium just inside the lecture hall, coming forward with her own first-hand experiences and speaking very boldly and very strongly. Now, just let me add a little bit more here. Denise Stoner was the co-author of Kathleen's most recent book, and I had the chance to sit with with Denise, and I said this in the talk. I probably sat with her for good grief. I'm going to say over three hours, close to four hours. We sat at a table and talked and talked and talked. So great. Uh, she's an amazing and very likable woman, and I and I was very struck by the depth of her experiences. What we addressed in the talk, and I want to readdress it here because I felt that it was very palpable and very strong is that Kathleen presents these things in a very calm, rational way. Denise Stoner's direct experiences, and I think this is true of anyone who's had these contact experiences, you know, drift into almost the metaphysical, you know, the weirdness, the growing up in the haunted house, the poltergeist stuff. So Kathleen presents this stuff very logically. And what is challenging for me trying to make sense of all this is that the, the, the phenomenon itself often plays out very illogically and and there's a tension there. And I can tell that uh that uh Kathleen is trying to I don't want to say rein it in, but she's trying to present it in a way that is very clear and very understandable, uh, you know so there's the tension being that the the phenomenon itself oftentimes is not very clear and and and, and quite illogical and then I also talking to both Denise and to Kathleen uh, it didn't come out in the talk; we certainly touched on it, but i I just want to impress upon anyone who's listening here that those two women. I think they helped each other enormously coming to terms with their own experiences and that that to me is very powerful and very interesting and I will also say you know we're like, like the people who have these experiences they are freaking cut adrift man no one gives a, no one gives a shit about these people collectively they are prone to being very isolated very lonely with their experiences and uh, there's no institution in place. I mean, maybe MUFON will do a little bit. Maybe there's some researchers out there who can help. You know, it's, it's not easy. I've talked to a lot of folks who've had these experiences. All of them will talk about the challenges of dealing with this stuff. So I just feel like it's really interesting that Kathleen and Denise could work together. It just seems like a blessing. I'm certain there are... Uh, researchers out there, and let's say editorialists or critics. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Paul Kimball. It'd be a person who would say, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't have two people like that doing research on each other or digging into each other." And I, I know they both use hypnosis, so uh, you know that's a big red flag in the eyes of a lot of folks. I can say that that these two women benefited at a deep emotional. I'll almost say spiritual level, by by being in contact with each other. That was very clear from talking with both of them, especially talking with Denise. Okay, before I officially sign off here, I will be adding an excerpt from the audiobook. I will put it on a different MP3 on the same page, and I will post an excerpt from the audiobook in 15 minutes or so, uh, because the because the content of that audiobook the abduction files. It was quite good, and a lot of interesting stuff there. So uh, after you finish listening to this, scroll down, click on the next mp3, and then hopefully you'll get a good idea of the content of that book. Okay, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.